Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. I'm Adam Deal. I'm joined by my wife, Whitney Deal. Hi. And this is uh, season three, the finale, episode 10 of The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. So we've talked this novel almost to death, but for an 800-page novel, we're really just scratching the surface. There's over 100 years of criticism and, and uh, thought about this novel, and like Whitney mentioned, there's a six-volume biography of Dostoevsky, so um, there's a lot more to say about uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky and, and this novel and Russia and all sorts of things than, than we could fit, but we're trying to hit some of the highlights, and so on this episode, we're going to hit the highlight we said we are going to hit last episode, uh, which was the uh, the Onion section and the uh, the following chapter, the Cana of Galilee section, which Dostoevsky said uh, was the most important chapter in the whole book. And we're also going to start uh, with just the, why did this novel open with this uh, scene at the monastery? So uh, we have talked about it some, but Whitney, let's, let's get it going. Um, the monastery scene just kind of, put us in your mind for a few minutes about like your impressions as you read it or your thoughts about it now, like reflecting on it, uh, you know, all uh, basically the, this is kind of like the gangs all here opening shot of the, of the, the novel um, in terms of like the first true like plot point of the novel. Yeah. We did talk about that, how, Almost every character who's going to have some significance later pops up somehow or other in this section of the novel. It's really well handled in that way. Um, gives cohesion to a novel that can feel diffuse because there's so many characters and situations. Um, I also, it's possible, I think, that um, the way that characters behave in the monastery and react to the monastery can be seen as a kind of spiritual litmus test. You know, where where are they spiritually? Um, and that's all revealed very early on if you're attentive as well. Um, and so it it functions beautifully in that sense. Um, it is broken up. It's not all action. I was just flipping through the first, you know, 60 or 70 pages of my copy of the novel, and you have a pretty long backstory given for each of the brothers and for Fyodor and his, his marriages and his wives. And so, and for elders, the institution of elders, there's a lot of explanation. Um, you got to put the exposition somewhere. Um, but I think having the exposition framed around this visit to the monastery, the visit to the monastery proves fateful, in the sense that it is prophetic of what's about to happen, that is the main plot machine of the novel, which is um, someone kills Fyodor Pavlovich, and Dmitri is going to be blamed for it. And and um, everyone, like you're saying, everyone that's there in a way is is involved. I'd say that Moisov is probably the least involved, but I think he's indicative of like he can't tolerate. Fyodor Pavlovich. Miosov is there partly, I, I would say, to function as just a representative person for a certain class of Russian, which right. was a liberalized, westernized 
kind of pseudo-intellectual, privileged Russian. And it's very significant what you just said, that he can't tolerate Peter Pavlovich because he prides himself that his worldview is incredibly tolerant, yet he can't tolerate him, whereas Zosima might be considered more of a reactionary or conservative or, you know, intolerant by someone who's more intellectual, but he's actually incredibly tolerant of the buffoonery. Like, Zosima strikes this, this great balance of tolerating kindly the buffoonery and just nonsense and, and drama that are coming from Fyodor Pavlovich and Dmitri, but also calling them on it to some extent. Like, he doesn't pretend it doesn't exist or that it's not wrong, but he's also just very tolerant. Right. And, you know, I was thinking about the, the role that Alyosha plays in, in this scene. And, um, you know, we're going to kind of like contrast that. Uh, sorry, I'm getting a little bit stuffy here. We're going to contrast that with the Cana Galilee um, onion section that we'll talk about next. But um, as I was rereading it to, to prepare for this last episode, I was... I was struck by how emotional he gets and he gets very fearful and he just seems like he's, he's there, but it's, it's as if he's being pulled apart, um, by his family and his faith or his, like his role within the monastery. And I think that that was, um, something that Dostoevsky really wanted to show. Like Alyosha really isn't at a place to like, um, like manage other people's emotions effectively in this early section of the novel. And, and I think that it, I think it has to do with his dad. I think that it's just hard to be around Fedor Pavlovich. He is someone who loves to lie. And I think Alyosha seems concerned that um, his elder and kind of the monastery will be disrespected by, he almost like he knows they will be disrespected by his father and that pains him because he loves Zosima so much. In fact, it's to the point where um, it's the narrator says after Zosima dies, all the love that lay concealed in Alyosha's pure heart for everyone and everything had for the past year been concentrated, and perhaps wrongly so, primarily on his beloved elder, now mm-hmm. dead. Um, that love has been channeled into Zosima so much that he's got a lot of anxiety that someone might disrespect Zosima. Yes. And he kind of knows his father is a scoffer. He disrespects everything he touches. So it makes sense that he would have that anxiety and be sort of torn apart by emotion at the prospect of this meeting. Yeah. And, and, and that he knows Elder um, Zosima is going to die like any day. Um, I think that that's something that, you know, not everyone can relate to, but certainly those that have lost loved ones, some of them, you know, they're going to die and, and you just kind of, kind of have to wait on God's timing. And, and, and it's just, it's just agony. I mean, there's just no, there's no sugarcoating it. It's, it's an awful feeling. And yet, you know, it's a different uh, experience of grief than someone that loses a a loved one um, suddenly. And, and, um, I think that that's, you know, Alyosha is in this uh, pre-grief, if you will, or this like, um, like unripe grief, 
And, um, and I think that there's just a lot to say about like being merciful with people who are in that state. And, and, you know, sometimes it's in something like uh, a physical illness. Sometimes it's someone that, you know, is like very mentally ill and you know, they're probably going to die by suicide or, you know, that they, they might make a reckless decision and, and get killed in an accident or something like that. Um, but, but all of these different things, you know, like people that struggle with addiction, I mean, it, it's, it's something that so many people are in the, the, uh, the, the room with, so to speak. Like the same way that Alyosha is in the room with, with this situation with Osama and his dad. And um, it, it just struck me as, as I was thinking about Alyosha is is the character that has to basically keep his faith in all of these intensely emotional, intensely high-stress, anxious moments. And Dostoevsky masterfully starts the novel with, like, the kind of the climax, in a way. Like, I would say this is, this is the point of emotional intensity that is, is many times duplicated in the novel but really never exceeded. And so, you know, it's interesting that he starts the novel with this much concentrated, um, uh, like, emotional investment because not only is Alyosha feeling, uh, you know, very uh, anxious about, like, his father disrespecting Zosima, I think that he's equally anxious that Ivan has written this, this um, article about the ecclesiastical courts and then here are the, the elders and the, the, the monks saying, like, so be it. So be it. Like, the government should turn into the church because that's, that's how it would be the most just on earth. And, and so Alyosha's thinking, like, yeah, Ivan's doing the same thing. He's scoffing at that idea, but he's presenting it much more, like, I think he's presenting it not sentimentally. Like, he's, he's presenting it intellectually and then here's here's Fyodor Pavlovich presenting these, you know, these emotions that he's saying in t- incredibly sentimentally, and so Alyosha is just getting pulled in every direction in this scene, and it, it really is just it's a, it's kind of over. I, I use the word overwhelming because I think it's indicative of it would be overwhelming to be Alyosha in that situation. Yeah, when you're in a situation with a lot of people who aren't telling the truth to themselves or each other who aren't being genuine. It is overwhelming. It's very confusing. You having to do this double duty of trying to communicate and read people's motives and understand subtext. It's just, I mean, yeah. When people are really veiled on what they really genuinely think, feel, believe. And there's just a lot of that in that room. Um, Zosima seems to have a certain level of just acceptance that that is the case and not um, agonizing over it, that they're just, like, he just encourages greater honesty and, you know, stop faking, stop lying. But he's not overly, overly bothered. Like, he can see it's a problem, but I think it's very easy to get overly bothered to the point where you're, you're in agony over other people's inability or unwillingness to be honest. 
You know, I was thinking about the places where, you know, the majority of characters gather in this novel. Like, you have the monastery, you have um, the party, <laughs> you know, the, the party in McCroy. Um, you have the trial. You've got the um, uh, Ilyush, Ilyushka's uh, bedside, you know, like, like when he's on his deathbed. Um, obviously, the house of Fedor Pavlovich. And um, I was just thinking about, like, the different places you could be where it would be hardest to be artificial in your intellects or, or um, in your thoughts or in your emotions. And I would say that probably the hardest place would be at a church. Like, in, in, in the situation that they are in, they're not at a worship service where they're anonymous. They're not, they're not in a, a, a dinner or something like that. I mean, they do, they do eat later, but... They're not in a situation where it's just social. They're in a situation where it's, it's as if they're giving the church um, the role of, of arbiter. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and so in this situation, like, like when he was saying, like it's, it's eliciting all of these different um, spiritual standpoints and you've got obviously people that that are uh, faithful Christians in this. You've got people who are like considering it, like someone like Dimitri, and then you've got Ivan, who is very—he's uh, convinced it's wrong, but he's actually a lot more emotionally involved in in whether it's wrong or not. Whereas Fyodor Pavlovich is not emotionally involved about whether it's wrong or not. He's emotionally involved in his own situation. Which is really just like asking for Father Zosima to to take his side and and like tell tell Dimitri like you need to pay your dad back like like this this is a classic like the parent tries to appeal to a, an authority figure to like put the child in its place, which <laughs> is something that I've been subject to, but um, but that I think is. It's interesting that, like, Fyodor Pavlovich isn't going to the church to get truth. He's going to the church for his truth to be uh, codified. And that's that's just not what the church does. And, and you know, Whitney and I have been, you know, uh, members of several different churches where we've gone to church, like, whether it's a meeting or counseling or something like that. And it's much different to go into a church when you're not there for Sunday school and a worship service, or, or you're not there for, um, you know, a social gathering like, like a dinner or like a baby shower or something like that. Like to go there to get personal counsel or to get, um, you know, whatever it is, it, it does, it brings you into a, an intimacy with, with God that you wouldn't have going to a party or going to um, a, a trial or something like that. Yeah, and it seems like one of the most significant things that happens is that um, you see Dimitri showing a certain humble respect for the people there. Like, that it's possible someone could speak into his life and situation there, whereas his father, Miosov, Ivan, seemed to be so guarded and cagey against the concept of being ha- having their lives spoken into or having wisdom spoken to them. I think Ivan grows a little less cagey um, as it goes because 
Zosa must see something in him that he is, he's struck by the truth of it and the insight of it. So he, um, is a bit humbled over the course of, whereas you, you know, I think Zosima also has insight into Fyodor Pavlovich, but it doesn't humble Fyodor Pavlovich. Like it's weird because his words sound humble. It's hard to read this first part because sometimes Fyodor Pavlovich sounds like he's being humble. He'll be like, you're right. I am a buffoon. I am being fake. Like he sounds like he's acknowledging his sin in a way that's really healthy, but then you get this feeling underlying that, that he's still playing a game and he's got some motive for, pretending to be humble and he's not really humble at all it's um it's not repentance at all it's just some sort of ploy yeah i find him very confusing as a character maybe because he is not genuine in your first impressions of him and so therefore it's confusing yeah, there are a lot of things he does that are funny in terms of like his body language and his uh, reactions to things, and he he like purposefully does something funny. Like he comes in after he said he's left, and he's like, "Ha ha, I'm still here." Um, and you know, I know someone that is somewhat of a Fyodor Pavlovich, and this person is <laughs> on my last good nerves. And, you know, that, that concept of someone who just, like, is, is just a, a gaping wound of need for attention and, 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 like, will do things to, like, let people down, to, you know, tick them off, to do whatever it is, just to keep their emotions about him. It's and like being willing to make yourself look foolish, unreliable, just in order to keep getting the attention, which yes. I, I don't understand as a person who my one of my big like struggles and weaknesses is wanting to look above reproach and like no one would ever be like, judging me. Um, so to me, it makes no sense to get attention. I don't want negative attention. I want zero attention or positive attention. I do not want negative attention, but some people just want attention. And I do think that Attention, you know, to, to, to quote Ladybird, um, attention and love, aren't they kind of the same thing? Well, to a degree, there are overlaps between attention and love. I think that the opposite of love is apathy, uh, to quote Tim Keller's recent Facebook post. Um, but I, I think that we can have intense love for someone or intense hate for someone, mm-hmm. um, and, and that Apathy is the absence of emotion for another person, which means, in a way, we're hating them most by saying, you don't even matter enough to, to like, cross my emotional uh, threshold. So this book I'm reading, actually brought this book with me to record the podcast because some things in it just made me think of um, Brothers K. This is Gentle and Lowly. Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I'm reading it for my book club. It's... Quite good. Um, But it says something that reminds me so much of what you're saying about apathy and indifference versus love or hate. Um, Strong feelings. I'm just going to turn to it. But I could probably summarize it, but maybe I'll just turn to it. Um, Basically saying that God does not have that apathetic indifference toward anybody. Yes. Um, Actually, I'll read this. It says... 
Just as we so easily live with a diminished view of the punitive judgment of God that will sweep over those out of Christ, so we easily live with a diminished view of the compassionate heart of God sweeping over those of us in Christ. So this idea that God just has incredibly strong feelings and reactions, he's not neutral. Um, to no one will Jesus be neutral, is another thing that this book says. But like we underestimate vastly how compassionate and tender God is toward his people. And we underestimate vastly the utter completeness of his rejection of people who reject him. And that that is also as it should be. And is just like, he is not lukewarm. God is not lukewarm mm. toward anybody. Um, as human beings, we're lukewarm. We almost to function. We have to be lukewarm toward lots of people because our mind can't contain strong emotions toward that many people. It's just, over, it would be overwhelming. Um, but yeah, you're right. They're like, there are definitely people who sense in their gut that they'd rather care, get get someone's kind of care and emotion rather than get apathy. And if they can't get it positively, I mean, this is classic with kids and their parents. If they're, if you have a parent who's kind of a absentee parent and you, you can't seem to get that parent's attention by doing the right thing, then you'll do the wrong thing to get the attention. Yeah. And I think that, you know, just, it, it is a lie of the devil to say that, like, it is better to get apathy from someone than to get hate. Because when you receive apathy from someone, you're really not being shown your dignity from that person. Um, and, you know, we're both teachers. We, we have students that are pretty apathetic to what we're trying to teach them, but that doesn't mean we should stop trying. And I think it's just, you know, it, it's like this novel it is about don't be apathetic. I mean, I think that that's one of the, like, theses of this novel is do not be apathetic, and, and it's the worst thing you can be is to just lose any zeal to be alive and sometimes you can like intensely hate your life and, and I certainly have been there and I know Whitney has too and and it's it's a hard place to be it's it, you know to, to go back to the beginning like it the agony you feel of knowing someone's going to die and just not knowing when is 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 a similar agony to knowing that life is hard and not knowing if it's going to get better and naturally things just change and so whatever state you're in you're not going to be in that that exact situation forever but it's it's just so hard to to live with hope the more the more times you get um you know what you think is apathy from god you know you think you like ask for something from god and you don't get an answer you know sometimes people will just uh interpret that as apathy and and I think that that's an understandable understanding but at the same time like when he was saying God isn't apathetic his understanding is so much more complete and better and 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 just grander than, than ours is and and you know I think that this novel has got a lot of people who are very needy you know, and, and I mean, I would, I would even include Alyosha in that and, and maybe even Zosima, like Zosima needs 
Alyosha to be there for this, you know, like he, he tells him to come come back, like even after the, that's what's so amazing about this novel, it's like so many things happen in one day and you're thinking like, gosh, this person's been on every emotional roller coaster at the at Carowinds or whatever mm-hmm. and then they're going to go to, you know, Six Flags Over Georgia and ride all those <laughs> at Zosima's bedside when he dies and, um, and I think that it's just, it's such a powerful novel in that it's putting Alyosha into all of these situations not to prove that he will just like be Jesus in every situation, but to prove that because his faith is in Jesus, his identity is in Jesus, his Christ-likeness becomes increasingly evident in the course of each each situation in the novel to the point to the at the end of the novel, he has this, like, like we talked about um I think it was the last episode, maybe it was two episodes ago, but um, he has this like Christ with his disciples before the ascension kind of thing. Like, there's just so much joy and ecstasy, even in this hard grief moment where he's just saying, like, This is important. I'm so grateful to get to have this opportunity. And, you know, for those, uh, you know, that, that have had funeral ser- services for their loved ones. You know, those can be really sweet times. I mean, I think about when my dad passed away and, and just how much love and devotion and, and honor uh, was brought to him, you know, after he passed away. And and it's just, you know, it's like, it, yes, it was very hard to lose my dad and painful. And and, and, and at the same time, it's, it's just, there are just some things in life that God allows you to see when you're in that deep, Grief, and I think that this is where Alyosha is heading into, you know, at, at the point that we're we're at in the monastery, and then he's already in it when he goes to Grushinka's. Um, but it is—it's a novel about like responding to grief. I mean, it's you know, here's a, a writer responding to the grief of his own son's death, and instead of just like wallowing and and saying like, "Well, I give up writing." You know, he, he turns to writing as an outlet for his, his grief, and, and I think it, it ministers to millions of people because of that. And, and you know, wallowing is, is choosing to stay in apathy about your own grief. I don't think it's wrong to just be in a, you know, a season of depression in, in grief. Like, I, I think that's just part of grief. But to be, like... I know someone who lost her mother a year ago and she has not gone a day on Facebook without posting about how hard it is. And she's just, it's almost like the only identity that she has is, is, is an orphaned daughter of a mom and, and she's married. She has kids. She doesn't seem to really be looking at the whole picture. And, and I think that that's, just a, a response to grief, but I, I think that she's getting to that point. And we know someone who lost her mom over 10 years ago who it kind of is still in that place, you know, <laughs> like that's a place where you, when you decide I, this is going to be the defining thing about my life, you never know how deeply it will actually entrench itself into who you are as a person. And, and you know, I, I mentioned that my dad passed away 
you know, a lot of times, like I, I think a lot of people know that about me, but a lot of people that know me don't know that that happened. And they certainly didn't know me when it happened. And I think that Alyosha is, is in this situation of like having to have this thing that, that, that's very dear to him be taken away from him. And yet by the end of the novel, he's a growing person. He's not still um, experiencing the pain of the loss. He's starting to grow in the midst of the aftermath of the loss. And I think that that's, that's something that Dostoevsky does incredibly well. And, and, you know, he had a lot of loss in his life. His dad got murdered by their serfs. I mean, you know, he, he had all sorts of health problems, gambling problems. And, you know, so he, he was well acquainted with, with loss. And, and as we mentioned, like, he was sentenced to die. I mean, he was going to get executed for, um, what was it, reading a speech in public? Is that what it was? Well, he was in a group that was trying to get a private printing press going to print like things That's with right. revolutionary That's tendencies. Right. Um, I, did, I think I did talk about how it could be illegal to, you know, if you read a speech in public that wasn't approved by the censors, that's illegal. That's right. Um, that's right. Lots of things were illegal. I and mean, basically just communicating in public in any way that wasn't approved by the censors was illegal. So you could get the death penalty for it because the idea was that you might be inciting treason or you know rebellion mm. against the authorities but yeah one you know one thing i thought of when you were just talking is that there are, there are a few different times when we're given examples of people who are tempted to kind of lose their investment in the people who are still alive because they're grieving we've got that woman who shows up to visit zosima yes. and her son has died and she has kind of given up on her husband and wants to give up on life. And Zosima tells her, you don't have to be comforted yet. Like, you can still weep and not be comforted yet. But go back to your husband. Don't give up on him. He still needs you. And when Alyosha loses Zosima, you know, he has a kind of a crisis, too. And it's not that he's going to lose his faith in God. It's that the way that uh, Joseph Frank puts it is that he was tempted to lose his faith in the ultimate beauty and goodness of God's universe. The word ultimate is important there because things will work together for the good or the universe is on an arc toward justice and restoration. It's not there yet. So if you just look around, you're going to see brokenness and grief and pain. But Alyosha was tempted to lose his faith that God was going to restore things and that the brokenness wouldn't last forever and that basically he would get to see Zosima again at the marriage supper when he also got to, you know, fully unite with Christ. And so by the end of the novel, like you mentioned, Alyosha is responding to Elyashinka's death very differently from how he responded to Zosima's death. He sees... Well, this has served already to bring us together in love and that this moment of unity and love among these, these boys and young men might serve to change the course of our whole lives and later when we're starting to lose our own hope or faith or purpose, we might think back on this moment and get a reignition of hope and faith and purpose. So he's just starting to be able to see God works even the deepest pain for good and that there's an ultimate 
reconciliation. That's what Ivan resolutely refuses to submit to, is that there's an ultimate reconciliation of all this pain. Um, But Alyosha comes to reaffirm his faith in that. You know, I've been thinking about, like, you know, as you mentioned, the, the final scene, it, it is interesting to kind of pair these two scenes, like the monastery scene and the final scene together, um, because it really is, uh, like, they're both incredibly emotional situations. Like, you couldn't help but have your emotions moved in really either of these situations. Um, I think one is much more of a, like, anxiety driver and one's more of a depression driver, but... Um, you know, I was thinking about, like, Dmitri gets to the monastery, obviously, late, and we've talked about it. Like, he's like, Smerdyakov told me it was at one, and he's, you know, he's so angry, and they're like, it's fine, come in. And so they're talking about Ivan's um, basically dichotomy of, like, the church, or the, the state should become the church, or if that's wrong, then, you know, it, it says, this is... Dimitri, he says, allow me to be sure I've heard correctly. Evil doings should not only be permitted, but should, but even should be acknowledged as the most necessary and most intelligent solution for the situation of every godless person? Is that it or not? It says, he suddenly cried unexpectedly. Like, you know, he's like screaming this. Like, he's not just like saying like, allow me to be sure. He's not just saying it in a like calm way. So he's already in a very heightened emotional situation before even getting to what the discussion gets to be. And so, you know, I, I bring this up because Father Piusy says exactly that. And then he says, I'll remember. And then it says, having said which, Dmitry Fyodorovich fell silent as unexpectedly as he had unexpectedly flown into the conversation. <laughs> and... You know, that's, I, I think it's just interesting that Dimitri, it, he's just such a fascinating character to me because he is more conflicted than, than Alyosha. Like, I, I think that Alyosha is fascinating in that he is, um, he's a beautiful character to follow. Like, you you want to see him act virtuously. And when he does, you're like, Yes, like, <laughs> you know, you, you're hoping, because in, in a novel where there's a quote-unquote hero, your expectation is set from the beginning of the, of the story. Like, this person's going to eventually do the right thing. Because it's true what Dimitri says about himself in this, this chapter, Why is Such a Man Alive?, where he says, it's all a lie. Outwardly, it's the truth, but inwardly, it's a lie. So when you give an... An account of his behavior, it, it's, like, very debased so often. It's just terrible. But inwardly, he is actually not that ignoble and debased and that far gone. And so they're saying, you know, didn't you drag a captain around the street with his beard? Like, didn't you do this? And he's like, well, I mean... I did do it, but not for the reason that you're thinking and not because I'm... And it's true. It makes him sound like he's just a cruel, hardened person who doesn't care about anyone else and just like a beast doing violence or something like yeah. to hear what he did. But 
in his mind, he was like, you are an agent of my father who is here doing something very base for my father. So in his mind, it was like he was doing something like fighting a duel for his honor or some such thing. I don't know. Like, basically, Dimitri's motives are not as ugly as his actions a lot of the time. And that means that there's greater hope for him to change his actions in the future. But in order to do that, he has to not take to heart that intellectual discussion he was just overhearing, which was to say that if someone's an atheist, they may as well just do whatever they want. Like, I think Dimitri's the kind of person who he is impressionable and is going to kind of take things hard and heavy when he hears them. And if he really did believe Ivan or Rakitin when he's being told everything is permissible if you if there's no God, and if he got to that point where he was like, well, maybe there's not a God, okay, there's not a God, who knows what Dimitri might do if he took that to heart. I think Dostoevsky wants us to understand what a dangerous truth that is, that there may be some people who are naturally cautious and self-protecting, like Rakitin, who aren't going to do anything that spectacular with their atheism. They're just going to be self-serving and selfish and kind of jerky their whole life. Someone like Dimitri deciding to be an atheist might be this like Superman of evil and just follow his inclinations yeah. to do anything. Well, and I think that, you know, it's interesting to say that because it made me think about um, Raskolnikov and, and Crime and Punishment, and he is so inspired by Napoleon. And I actually think Raskolnikov could never be Napoleon. He's too neurotic. He's too, he's, he's, I mean, he he's basically. Over-thinker. Yeah, I he's an overthinker. I don't think Napoleon was an overthinker. Yeah. He, he, he's much more on the Ivan side of things. But if Dmitri. Uh, he could be a Napoleon. Yeah, he could basically be Russia's Napoleon and could, you know, cause great harm to Europe or Russia or both. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's the thing about Dmitri is, like, to Whitney's point, very, very malleable. And um, I think, it, you know, it, it's interesting that he's so malleable in this place. You know, he's in the church, but he's really not being... Uh, forced into believing in what the church is teaching. He's really like contemplating the opposite of what the church is teaching. And, and I think that there's something to be said for that. Like the church should be a place where doubt and like hate of God and uh, uncertainty and, and, and apathy should be acknowledged. And, and I think like, Given, given time to vent, um, and and if that's happening, I think that 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 shows a, a willingness of the church to be all things to all people, like not to abandon their faith for the sake of someone's faithlessness, but to dignify someone's faithlessness for the sake of bringing them to faith. And not be so scared of the messiness that comes along with just having a bunch of people together, you know? We were talking, Adam, the other day about the concept of only singing the Psalms. Oops, dropping my book. Only singing the Psalms in worship services. There are churches that do that. And how, From your book club, <laughs> yeah. the Gospel with the House Key. 
Yeah, Rosaria Butterfield's church does that. But the the Psalms, if you were to church and sang some of the Psalms, it would feel so different from going to a typical Protestant worship service because as my colleague Will Williams said at lunch yesterday to me, um, the typical Protestant worship service is so triumphant. There's such an emphasis on the victorious nature of walking with Christ, and that is true, but we don't always feel that in our emotions. Like there's a deep truth to the fact that we are, you know, more than conquerors and victors in Christ, but sometimes we feel pretty mad at circumstances or injustice or people. Sometimes we feel depressed. Like the Psalms let you let that right out. And I think that if someone wrote a worship song based on some of the Psalms, it wouldn't get too popular because it'd be like, this is kind of dark, but being a person's kind of dark. Like God's not afraid of that. He can shine light into the darkness, but you gotta be real about the darkness before you get the light shown into the darkness. Yeah. And I think Dimitri's willingness to walk in there and be a, a little more real about what's really going on with him is a good sign. Yeah. And and I guess he's, you know, the the primary the, the primary source of his like emotional release in this in this scene is Grushinka. And you know, we talked about her at length. We're going to talk about her some more here. Um, but he just has this devotion to her that if you had to call it a, a Greek type of love, it probably would be mania. Like, it'd yeah. probably be obsessive because it isn't, it, it isn't an Eros love where both people are eyes locked, blinders on, you know, in love with each other. It's not that. It's something different. Because he's got this, like, I don't know what to call it, but he has something for Katerina Ivanovna. And and so he has this sense of, like, I need to be with someone who I can look up to the way that my mother was, was this noble woman that my dad looked up to. But then at the same time, I mean, it is pretty maniacal to be obsessed with getting this woman for yourself who you think might actually marry your father for money. Like almost anyone would say, if I, if I really think this woman's going to marry my gross father, just repugnant father for money, I, I don't want that person anymore, but he just redoubles his efforts. Like, I know I want her even more. I have to have her. I have to, it's maniacal. <laughs> and I think that, you know, we've talked about, like, what do these characters represent? I do think that that, that um, battle for Grushinka is, is indicative of something that Dimitri, uh, not Dimitri, that Fyodor Dostoevsky was creating in this novel, which is the true Russian cannot be apathetic about the thing that he he most treasures, you know? And, and I think that that's, you know, yet again, to talk about, like, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, Russia is just not apathetic about Ukraine. And, and you know, America really can't relate to that. Like, we don't have a thing that we're like, you know, we need to be wed together with this other country. Like, we, we just don't, 
we don't have another country like that, and our history isn't like that. And so, the the you know military you know um, whatever you want to call it invasion uh, war you know what whatever you want to call it is is indicative of Russia's natural character is is to to care you know and to to be intense about things that some countries just don't have that personality and um, I think that there's something about an elemental intensity and zeal that that is a great thing because if you turn it in the right direction it becomes a zeal for God it becomes a zeal for the gospel and of course you can miss miss that mark when you're aiming for it which it, maybe that's what Russia is doing right now but um, I just think about that concept of like what do I like there are people I know who will act as if Georgia football winning on Saturday is like the second coming of Christ. And it's not. It's just a football game. There's a tendency for zeal to be to be autocratic, to use a Russian kind of concept and word, to be dominating. You know, so like you can see it in sports zealotry where it just we got to dominate everybody else because that's what my passion for this thing is is dictating. And I think Russian nationalism, because of you're talking about this zealous national character that seems to exist, we, we get to dominate everyone else, or we need to like absorb everyone else. There's like a sense of Slavic nationalism that transcends Russian nationalism. Right, right. There's just a lot going on there. I do think Dostoevsky depicts the Russian national character as being zealous, like you say. Whatever the object of your your love is, you go wholeheartedly toward it. And that can be horrible if the object of your love is unworthy. And it's interesting that America has so much, um, you know, and I'm really only speaking to America because I haven't lived in the other places, but there's so much zeal. I mean, sports is just one of the things. But there's so much zeal for like these products like like you know rooting for a team rooting for a movie rooting for yeah. a, a politician they're all they're all just replaceable they're all you know they're all, they're all just to me I see it as we are afraid to put our zeal in the in the things that that are genuinely real do you think all of those things you just mentioned to some extent, or just an American zeal for personal peace and affluence. Like, yeah, because I, I, I think about independence being yes, at, yes. A, at, a, at a core of American values and identity, and personal peace and affluence is kind of the end result. A lot of times of of independence, like a kind of don't tread on me while I cultivate my own personal, like. Pleasures, yeah, and maybe I find pleasure in sports, or I find pleasure in, you know, consuming this out of the other. I find pleasure in, you know, my vacation spot. I find pleasure in, um, like you say, I think to some extent even politics, like the way we we kind of sell our political candidates through like an ad campaign, and then mm-hmm. you you go 
buy the one you want when you vote, so to speak. Um, consu- a consumeristic society tends to show that the people within that society are zealous for personal peace and affluence. That I just want to enjoy my life, kind of be left alone. Like, yeah. like don't tread on me. Let me do me. Um, we don't want to be drafted into a war to conquer some other people's into our way of life. Like, no, please just let me go on my vacations, go out to eat, watch my sports team. Even if it, I mean, I think the most idealistic among us who don't become faithful followers of Christ become faithful followers of a uh, political party and get their idealism out through being like, I'm going to help the world by going to a political rally or posting on social media about my politics. But yeah, I don't know. Just maybe an obsession with, with making ourselves with, with the, with the pursuit of uh, happiness and pleasure. And it's interesting that you bring that up because like, for example, you're all in uh, for your political candidate, sports team, you know, uh, movie franchise, whatever to be successful and in the second they lose, you are as crestfallen. You're probably more crestfallen than they are. <laughs> like, you know, you're just like, oh, my gosh. I, I just can't show my face tomorrow yeah. because the team that I wanted to win didn't. And we genuinely my, you know. have parents making their kids feel that level of crestfallen for not winning a like, youth soccer game yes. or something. And, and, you know, I point that out because there's something about that that's a very American thing. Deciding that you are a Georgia Bulldogs fan. And I just bring that up because we both went to Georgia. We both root for Georgia. We're happy if they win. But I have gotten enough if you want to call it emotional distance, I don't want to call it, I don't know what to call it, but yeah. I have divorced myself from the need for Georgia to win because I've realized that I am much more of a person than just what school I went to or what, what football team is in my state or, you know, whatever. Or, or even like, you know, if, like let's say, you know, I, I taught every person on the team it still wouldn't be me, you yeah. know? And that can be very emotional for people for whatever reason. Like, my dad rooted for this, and so it's part of my bond with my dad, and so therefore it means a lot to me. Like, you know what I mean? It's not it's not always just rooted in something shallow. Sometimes it's rooted in something deep. Like yes. Your childhood yes. memories or, like, the good times you had with your friends. It, yeah. I mean, like, I have a friend whose father played for a team and then his father passed away young. And so that team holds a very special, that college football team holds a very special place in his heart because it reminds him of what his dad loves so much. And then yeah. what was deeply personal to his dad, cause he played for the team. So I'll have to say, I think that sometimes the idolatry of sports in America is because it's such a like longstanding family in community right. tradition that you associate with good feelings and memories. Um, that's not all of it, though. Right. And, you know, I'm talking about all of this, you know, as a way of thinking through, like, I think that 
that, you know, at the root of a lot of that, like you're saying, is family. And I think a lot of political uh, investment is mm-hmm. actually a rebellion against family. Like the yeah. most the most ardent, you know, hyperbolic political people I know on either side of, of American politics anyways are rebelling against mm-hmm. the, the, the status quo of their family. And then what happens is you might get like a couple generations of new status quo, but then eventually you'll have new rebellion mm-hmm. because if you have politics as your idol, your be-all, end-all, that will eventually taste sour to a child or a grandchild, and mm-hmm. they will say, I don't, that's not me. And they're right to do that, you yeah. know? And, and, and I think, you know, I think that that element of, like, who are you and your family is so defining to you, that's such a central thing to this novel because it's, it's like, are you a Karamazov? And what, what is a Karamazov is kind of like where the, where the monastery scene starts and really like where the, the scene at the very end ends. It's like we're all Karamazovs at the end. It's such a beautiful mm-hmm. like rebirth of that name and that it doesn't have to be limited to the sins of the father. It can be, it can be about the restoration of the name, mm-hmm. um, by the son and, and really by, you know, by the youngest son that, that in some ways seems like the least important and the one that is like least self-involved, he is actually the one that's restoring the name most rather than, you know, the most intellectual one or the most like, uh, you know, action based, uh, like emotional one. Yeah, I mean, just the the hopeful trajectory of this novel, which mirrors the hopeful trajectory of the whole of history and where it's headed, which is that there can be redemption. Your family can have gone down dark paths and sinful paths, and there can still be redemption and hope, and it only takes one person deciding to put faith in God and change that pattern. Like, it only takes... It doesn't take a thousand generations for the pattern to change of what Karamazov means. Yeah. Because, you know, I think about Alyosha getting bitten in the finger mm. um, because of being a Karamazov. Like, that that was the, the motivation. It was like, you're a Karamazov. Like, Dmitri Karamazov hurt my father. And then by the end, it's, you know, hurrah for Karamazov. Like, even that, like, the, the redemption of the name you get the redemption of the family one by one. I think there's a lot of hope that all three brothers are going to be redeemed going yeah. forward. You know, I, I, I didn't notice this when I read it before, but I noticed it this morning, so I'm going to read it. This is also in the Why is Such a Man Alive monastery scene. Dimitri frowned horribly. Or it says, um, sorry, let me scoot it back a little bit. Um, it says, Dmitry Fyodorovich... Uh, Fyodor Pavlovich suddenly screamed in a voice not his own. If only you weren't my son, I would challenge you to a duel this very moment with pistols at three paces across a handkerchief. Across a handkerchief, he said, he ended, stamping with both feet, which is such a like Josephine move. <laughs> says, old liars who have been play acting all their lives have moments when they get so carried away by their posing that they indeed tremble and weep from excitement, even though at that same moment or just a second later they might whisper to themselves, you're lying. 
You shameless old man, you're acting even now, despite all your holy wrath and holy moment of wrath. Says Dmitri Fyodorovich frowned horribly and looked at his father with inexpressible contempt. I thought, I thought, he said somehow softly and restrainedly, that I would come to my birthplace with the angel of my soul, my fiancé, to cherish him in his old age. And all I find is a depraved, sensualist, and despicable comedian. And, you know, it makes me think about veterans that, like, go to defend America's freedom and then they come to our our country. At, you know, they, maybe they've been in, in Iraq or Afghanistan or just, you know, other bases around the world. And they come back and they're like, this is what I... This is what I got my arm blown off for. Like, you know, Dimitri is coming to home with the expectation of it being a wonderful thing because it should be. But instead, it's a depraved sensualist and a despicable comedian. And he's, you know, it's like he, in, in his ideal state, he was going to be faithful to Katerina Ivanovna. They were going to be happy together. But because he comes back and his dad is just this scoundrel, he he just, he breaks. And he has a kind of love and dreams for his father um, in the sense that it's not based on any, even the evidence of reality that he's aware of. Like, he knows his father abandoned him and refused to even remember that he existed so thinking that you're going to come back and have this sweet relationship with your father as an adult it's naive and it's a love it's a love in dreams I would say his love for Katerina Ivanovna is also a love in dreams because he is not attending to who she really is he is attending to a concept of what theoretically their relationship could be and that's another way of not being genuine is to refuse to acknowledge the limitations of other people and to just assume they're always going to come through for you and it's going to be what you'd always dreamed. It leads you to despise those people yes. when they don't live up. Um, I think Katerina Ivanovna has the same thing for Dimitri. Like she has this concept of what it could be like if she was the hero who redeemed him and she's not attending to what he's really like and what's probably going to happen and what actually tends to go down when they're around each other. And so she's full of hatred for him for not fulfilling mm. her idealistic scheme. And so, yeah, I think that concept of love and dreams being dangerous, um, that theoretical love for what someone could be like being dangerous is very, very much embedded in what she just read. Yeah. And, you know, I think about this, like, I've just been thinking a lot about this monastery scene and, and Dimitri arriving on the scene. Because really it's like, it, it hasn't fully begun until Dimitri's there. And then it, then it just, it's like it explodes in emotion immediately. And I was thinking about that concept of, here is a moment where, like, Fedor Pavlovich says that in a voice not his own. It's like he it's like he says, I want to have a duel at three paces, which is like closer than Whitney and I are sitting right now. So it's like you would certainly kill one another. And um, he wants to kill his son. I mean, it's like he just said he wants to kill his son. Like he, he, he that's that's the level of disgust he has for Dimitri. And of course Dimitri has equal disgust for him. And and it's like, like I said, there should be a place in the church for people to just say, like, 
I want to kill you. And, and it just be a place where, like, we're going to heal from this because you need to be able to be fully forthright in how you feel about a person within the church. If you don't feel like you can be, you know, honest about that, then that's a big challenge to faith. It, it, it makes faith into this thing that's, that's surface level and, and, and um, facade rather than deep and, and, and your innermost being. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. But then also, it it's said right after he says, like, I want to kill my son, essentially, that he didn't really mean that, that he was being theatrical. And that if he, he could have stepped back a moment later and said, you, you old man, you're just being theatrical, you don't mean that. Because I don't think he really wants to have a duel with Dimitri because he doesn't want to die. Like, he doesn't literally yeah. want to have a duel with Dimitri. He's... He hates him, but he's being overblown in the way he's stating that he hates him. Well, and I bring that up just be, not to disagree, yeah, but just yeah. to say that sometimes we feel like getting something that is hyperbolic off our chest that is more than what we really literally mean. Like, if you were to go into church and be like, I just want to kill this guy, you probably don't literally want to kill the guy. What you mean is, I am so so, so angry. That's Those are the terms that you feel you can explain it the best. Like, we can be being authentic without, while still being able to step back once we cool down slightly and say, actually, that wasn't literally true. I just wasn't being careful with my words because my emotions are running so yeah. high. And same when you tell, tell someone you love, you hate them. It's like, Kids tell that to their parents, spouses say that to each other, like, because your emotions are running so high, that's hardly the whole truth of the situation. The truth of the situation probably is that you love the person, you feel that they don't love you in some way or another, and you're so resentful of that, that it comes out in the words, I hate you. Well, I, I read the next little bit, it says, to a duel, the old fool screamed again, breathless and sprang saliva with each word. And you, Pyotr Alexandrovnich Musov, let it be known to you, sir, that in all the generations of your family there is not and may never have been, uh, may never has been a, a woman loftier or more honorable, more honorable, do you hear, than this creature as you have just dared to call her. And you, Dmitry Fyodorovich, traded your fiancé for this very creature, so you yourself have judged that your fiancé is, isn't worthy to lick her, voot, her boots. That's the kind of creature she is. And then... You know, Father Yusef and Kalganov are just like a shame, a shame and a disgrace. And then, then Dimitri says, "Why is such a man alive?" Uh, growled in a muffled voice, now nearly beside himself with fury, somehow raising his shoulders peculiarly, so that he looked almost hunchbacked. No, tell me, can he be allowed to go on dishonoring the earth with himself? He looked around at everyone, pointing his finger at the old man. His speech was slow and deliberate. Do you hear, you monks? Do you hear the parasite? Fyodor Pavlovich flung at Father Yosef. So it's almost like Fyodor Pavlovich doesn't know what he's doing, and he says, I want to kill my son. And then when his son says, I want to kill my dad, he's like, do you hear? He, he said it. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it, it's so upsetting because instead of having guilt for saying that he wanted to kill his son, he's just like, I was... I was play acting. I wasn't. I didn't even know what I was saying. I like what he was saying. Like maybe he was just so deep in his emotions that he didn't know what he was doing. But 
Fyodor Pavlovich is just much more. I think he 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 acts the buffoon because he knows he is so deserving of God's judgment. And so there's something about that that I think is just really like it's really sad in a way. It's like people will will adopt a personality to try and shield themselves from God knowing them as as if God doesn't know their hearts. Yeah, it's like um, his scoffing is going to... I think that he doesn't want anything to actually be serious because if he refuses to take anything truly seriously and treat it with gravity, then it's like nothing has any gravity and nothing has any consequences and there's no, there's no eternal consequences. Like I think of just a little moment where um, after the bow... Um, when Zosima bows to Dimitri, which is, to me, it feels if you were there, that would be a powerful moment where you would be silent, you know, just thinking like, what does that mean? And just take it in and not presume to really interrupt or say anything. But Fyodor Pavlovich is saying, what did it mean falling at his feet like that? Was it symbolic or what? (laughs) He just can't stop. He doesn't want to stop talking in a way that just normalizes something that really ought to be special and holy. It'd be like, to me, it's like if you're sitting next to someone in a church service and there's a baptism going on and they keep poking you in the ribs with their elbow and saying, how cold do you think that water is, huh? Is, is he got in a bathing suit under there? Like, they just can't let it be a special holy moment. You kind of expect that out of a little kid. You know, that's the kind of thing a little kid would, you know, they poke you and ask you kind of inappropriate questions in the middle of, like, sacred moments. Um, You don't expect a 60-year-old man to be behaving that way. But in some ways, he's like a little kid throwing temper tantrums. Yeah. And, you know, that that is one of the things that we have said already, and I'll say again, like, the, the ending of that first chapter, like, people are much closer to being children than they, they realize. And I think that that's just part of the humility you have to get from God. You can't, I don't think you can have a genuine sense of that. Like, I know people that are very, what I would call, like, new age, spiritual, that, like, act very zen. But when you really, really, really poke the beehive, they have got this mad as a hornet you know, inside of them that they have covered over with this layer of everything is cool, man. I'm not going to get upset. And I think that there's, you know, there's something to be said about Dimitri just having this, like, very transparent emotion. Um, I'm someone that I would say is pretty transparent in his emotions, (laughs) and I have tried to learn how to slow my emotions rather than to just... Uh, you know, bottle them up, but to just release them in a way that is not destructive to myself and others. Um, but there's a time and a place for every emotion. And so this idea of Dimitri is is just going through every emotion very quickly. Like he's going from like intense uh, vigilance about like, don't you dare talk badly about Grishinka to this like intense anger to intense despair to you know i mean just 
et cetera, et cetera, like all within a few minutes. And whenever you're around someone like that that goes through emotions very quickly and like Whitney and I can both attest, like when we are having an argument, sometimes we can go from one emotion to another very quickly. I think it's usually in those situations that the other person doesn't know what to do. Because mm-hmm. you don't know what to expect from the person. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense. Like I can be repentant of saying something, you know, hurtful, but then get hurt again and then be angry again, yeah. like within a very short amount of time. And it feels like the person's being insincere. It's, I do think we don't give each other the benefit of the doubt sometimes. We assume that the truest thing is the worst impulse and the fake thing is the better impulse and I don't I don't think that's right like I think if someone goes from being mad to sorry to mad to sorry they're they could both be equally true that's just where their emotions are swinging it's not like oh you were fake when you were said you were sorry because now you're mad again it's like I think that people are more complicated than that yeah and I, I do I do think you're right I think it's just like I said when we see people go through emotions um, like that, other than other than at college sporting events, um, <laughs> or, or watching like um, poll results coming back, you know, <laughs> it's like um, it, I do think it's hard to be someone witnessing someone go through those emotions uh, as Alyosha is, and so you know, I think I think he's just kind of shell shocked in this moment, and and I think that that's there's something to be said for that because. It is in your shell shock moment that I think you really have to just let God act on your behalf. Like, like that's the, you know that like the the when there were one set of footprints, that's where He carried me. It's like I think you're much more likely to be carried by God in that moment of like I don't know what to do, instead of like you know I'm just gonna lie down and and you know be a young child about it and be like you have to carry me, you know like. I think that God is much more excited to carry us when we just say, I can't, you know, like, I, I don't know which way to go. And he, mm-hmm. he just takes us. And um, I think it's, you know, that kind of switches us into the the onion and can of Galilee section pretty seamlessly. Um, Alyosha is going to Grushinka's after he has been at Father Zosima's when, when he died. And his intention is basically to let uh, Grushinka seduce him, which is kind of not seducing them. <laughs> it's like you know he's going to 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 see if Grushinka will like follow through with this like man eater impulse that he knows she has because yeah. he just he's so he is so broken hearted that Father Zosima's body did not immediately start, like, causing people that touched it to, you know, cure their paralysis or whatever. Like, he thought that there was some sort of holiness to Zosima that was going to bring heaven to earth. Like, as soon as he died, that everything would be made right. You know, like, there would just be these incontestable miracles that... Uh, everyone would speak about in Russia for the rest of time. Like this, this, this is how holy a man he was. Yeah, and then he, you know, just has this sense of apathy that I think you sometimes have when you, when things don't work out the way 
you expected and hoped, and you're just like, I don't find whatever. I don't even care. So it's not like he runs to Grushinka's house of his own volition. It's that Rikitan is like, you know what we ought to do since yeah. you're in this mood? Go to Grushinka's. And he's like, fine, whatever. Yeah. I'll go. I, I don't care. Because that I don't care anymore about trying to do the yeah. right thing. But God is, that's the thing. He's kind of let himself be carried along. And God still cares for him in that moment. And he God carries him along to Grushinka's. And it ends up being... Rather than a place of corruption, it ends up being a place where he has his hope restored. Yeah, like sanctification for for uh, Alyosha, and maybe like to to a degree justification for for Grushinka. And you know, I was thinking about like, I don't know if he's apathetic. I think he's numb, and that that's like coming across as apathy. Yeah, because I think that that's just how grief works. I, I just. You know, it's the kind of thing that if you've never broken your leg, you can't, like, like you can imagine it would hurt terribly. But it's like people that have broken their leg can attest to, like, this is how it felt, <laughs> you know? And I think that that's, that's how grief is. It's, it's just those that have lost, you know, this, that, and the other relationship have experienced grief in different ways. But I think that grief generally involves a lot of shock and just it's as if you saw um an interstate in front of you just like collapse and all of a sudden you just stopped still and there's cars behind you so you can't just reverse so it's like where where do you go you know to that point there's a moment in the chapter in onion that says so Grishinka is sitting on Alyosha's lap at this point. It says, The great grief in his heart swallowed up every sensation that might have been aroused. And if only he could have thought clearly at that moment, he would have realized that he had now the strongest armor to protect him from every lust and temptation. Because he is feeling too numb to be aroused into much of anything at that moment, including sexual temptation. Um, He's just going along in kind of a sleepwalk state or something. And it's funny that you mentioned that because right before that, um, like you said, Grushinka's like wanting to sit on his lap. <laughs> Rakitin says, he has a grief. He didn't get promoted. And then she says, what do you mean promoted? And he says, his elder got smelly. <laughs> and... And that's how he, like, reveals that Zosima has died. And so he he doesn't say Zosima has died. So she goes on Mm -hmm. with this, like, kind of playful seduction kind of thing. Um, And it's just, you know, I don't know. Just the way that Rakitin is kind of scoffing at it and making fun of him. It's like he's so numb. Alyosha is so numb in that moment that it doesn't affect him. And, And that, you know... Maybe that's good. I mean, I you know I can't I can't say with conclusivity, but I I can certainly say that some of the worst things that have happened to me happened to me in the you know aftermath of my dad passing away, and and maybe that was when God needed them to happen to me so that I wouldn't have these grudges the rest of my life against these people that that treated me ill, you know, and and. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's where, where Alyosha is in this moment of, like, 
like Whitney just read, like he is armored against the temptation with grief. And, and if you let God give you that armor, he might actually protect you from something that could hurt you much, much worse than losing a person, you know, something that might like do irreparable harm to your body, mind, or spirit. Um, and so Alyosha, you know, is sitting there and it, it continues, it says, um, it says at the end of it, it says, um, who was sitting on his knees and embracing him now aroused in him suddenly a quite different, unexpected and special feeling, the feeling of some remarkable, great and most pure hearted curiosity and without any fear now, without a trace of his former terror, that was the, the main thing and it could not but surprise him. So he, it, it's as if he notices that he's not being aroused by Grushinka's like s- seductive advance. And then he like, it's like he gets the confidence from God to like probe into this situation and get her to open up. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that's something that we mentioned on several other episodes. It is part of the Christian faith to be an open person. And, and I think that open people get opened up to, you know, and I've, I've certainly been opened up to by a lot of people and, um, and it's just, in a way, it's overwhelming because it's like, I can't believe so many people have told me so many serious and, you know, consequential things about their lives. But in a way, it shouldn't be surprising because it should just be like, well, that's what's supposed to happen. When, when you show Christ to another person, they should, wa- they should want to be open and honest the way that the woman at the well is in, you know, John chapter 4. It's like that should be the natural response of someone. And when someone isn't open and honest, like, you know, Fyodor Dostoevsky, or not Fyodor Dostoevsky, Fyodor Pavlovich is never open and honest. There's, there's something pulling him away from that. And that's, you know, it's like there's a reason Jesus says Satan is the father of lies because Satan wants to tempt people away from truth with, like, basically like, immunizing them to their own lies and not being able to tell when they're lying to themselves. And that's why Zosima says, like, above all, don't lie to yourself to Fyodor Pavlovich because that's, that's the worst thing you can do is, is tell yourself you're, you're better than you think you are or you're worse than you think you are because denying your identity in God's, you know, in God's eyes is, is the you know, recipe for disaster in, in terms of spiritual growth. Yeah, what it what it looks like for Grushinka to start being more real is for her to show that she actually has some compassion and and some compunction. Um, she's you know playing this game of trying to seduce Alyosha and kind of playing up to Rakitin maybe because Rakitin is in the room too. And then when she suddenly realizes that Father Zosima has died, it says. Um, she said, so Father Zosima is dead, cried Grushinka. Good God, I did not know. She crossed herself devoutly. Goodness, what have I been doing sitting on his knee like this at such a moment? She started up as though in dismay, instantly slipped off his knee and sat down on the sofa. Alyosha fixed a long, wondering look upon her, and a light seemed to dawn in his face. And I think that 
what's deep, more deeply true about Grushinka is that she does have, like, like Dimitri, despite her behavior, she does have some just reverence in her heart. Like, she's not just a scoffer. In fact, Rakitin's way more of a scoffer than she is, even though Rakitin lives at the monastery. Like, yeah. Grushinka is the one who has some devotion to God, like, the capacity for that left in her heart. And she has a capacity for compassion. When she realizes, oh, Alyosha's really hurting, she immediately changes her tune. And Alyosha is struck by the fact that she still is considering going back to this man who betrayed her and broke her heart. And he's like, she has a real capacity for forgiveness. And that clearly was a deep like wound for her that never is healed. Like He starts to feel, she has compassion for me, I have compassion for her, and just opens up all these doors for both of them. And Rakitin is just left out of that because it seems to me like Rakitin has compassion for nobody. In that next paragraph, it says, Rakitin, he said suddenly, I said, he suddenly said loudly and firmly, don't taunt me with having rebelled against my God. I don't want to hold any anger against you, and therefore you be kinder too. I've lost such a treasure as you never had, and you cannot judge me now. You'd do better to look here at her. Did you see how she spared me? I came here looking for a wicked soul. I was drawn to that because I was low and wicked myself, but I found a true sister. I found a treasure, a loving soul. She spared me just now. I'm speaking of you, Agrafina Alexandrovna. You restored my soul just now. And I think that that's, that's one of the just most powerful, profound moments in the entire novel is... is that Alyosha sees her as his sister. And the novel's called The Brothers Karamazov for many reasons. But, I, you know, I've been thinking about the title, and I think that the true Christian worldview says every person is a brother and sister. Like, we are all... I know, yes, it complicates things when you think about marrying someone, but... It's to say that everyone is on equal footing under God. And everyone is either a prodigal child or is a faithful child. And, you know, that concept of, you know, she was my sister just now. You know, this whole novel is about family. And it's about treating each other as family. And and I think that... You know, Russia maybe does a better job of thinking of itself as a nation that's a family, certainly than America does. And, um, you know, there's just something to be said for, like, if I treated every person, regardless of their social status or their race or their gender or their age um, or their, you know, sexual orientation or what, you know, whatever it be, if I treated them like my brother and sister how would that show the, the gospel of Christ better to them than if I treated them like you're an other? <laughs> you know, you're, you're not part of this family. Yeah, like we're an in-group, out-group situation yeah. or like a tribal loyalty situation or something. And, and Yeah, go, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. If you're and I, you know, I do believe that when, when the gospel is forefront in my mind and forefront in my eyes no matter who someone is I'm going to show them the love of Christ and that's because I want them to know Jesus like that's the 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 pulsing beat of my heart and 
you know, I, I do think that some people that are not ready to know Jesus or not ready to let Jesus know them, they get really rebuffed by that, and they, you know, they don't want to be around me. And that's, you know, sad to me, but it's at the same time, it's like I want them to know, like, I want you to be my brother in Christ. I want you to be my sister in Christ. Like, I want you to be in heaven for eternity because hell for eternity is not something I want on anybody, even the people that I would say are the most, like, hard for me to love. One of the things that's sad about the Christian experience right now is that there are so many churches and denominations where people can go partner up with like-minded people who want to worship the same way and have a similar temperament and kind of hide from other believers who are different. And that means even if, you know, you're at a church where you feel in some way or other like the odd man out, whether it's just like your socioeconomic position or your kind of family's style of life or something about your theology or something about your personality that you can want to run away from that group of believers and go find someone more like-minded because it's easier to be with people who are like-minded. And that's kind of how modern church works is that we're in these camps of like-minded people, but the body of Christ is actually really diverse. It's people who aren't going to be similar and who can learn from each other and balance each other out. You know, even so at my school, the seniors were picking a word that they wanted to characterize their class and they picked the word family that was the, the most prevalent word. And then as adults, we were just reminding them that, okay, think about how hard it is to be in a family sometimes because those are not your buddies that you gravitated toward naturally and you would have chosen. These are people that God has placed you with who you might not even like being around sometimes. I mean, especially if you start thinking about how hard it is for siblings to get along sometimes, how hard it is for a parent and child to get along sometimes, extended family, when you throw that into the mix, you have to work hard to have harmony within a family, but because it's family, oftentimes you keep working at it rather than giving up. And if that's what these students are asking for in their class, whoa, what a what a deep bond they're aiming for. It's way bigger than so many other words yeah. they could have chosen. You know, I think about that that thing that I just read from Alyosha, and then it says, I will start crying, I will start crying, Grushinka kept repeating. He called me his sister. I'll never forget it. Just know one thing, Rakitka. I may be wicked, but still I give an onion. And he says, an onion? Ah, the devil. They really have gone crazy. Rakitin was surprised at their exaltation, which offended and annoyed him though he should have realized that everything had just come together for them both in such a way that their souls were shaken, which does not happen very often in life. And, you know, that that is just such a beautiful moment for me because I, I think that I seek out soul-shaking moments all the time. I think that that is why I have such a hard time in my workplace and in the church and in my family <laughs> and just pretty much anywhere I go because I want to have my soul shaken and I want to shake people's souls because I want I want the Holy Spirit to be 
just basically like giving me like growth hormone, you know, just like I want, I want to just like immediately be, be changed, be, be either more purified or more strengthened or more, you know, more emptied or whatever it is. I want those feelings. And I, you know, I do get that. Like I listen to a lot of sermons and I get that a lot of times when I listen to the sermon, like I will get moved in the middle of the sermon. Um, and, you know, I know that, like, it was shaking for, like, if it's Tim Keller or Scott Patty from Grace Community Church in Nashville. Like, the ones that I listen to regularly, I know it was shaking for them to, like, deliver it. But at the same time, it's like they they, they did it. It's recorded. I'm listening to a recording of it. I'm not listening. I'm not in the room with them, you know. And so when I get that that one-on-one interaction with a person where I feel like, wow, I just really treated you like my sister in Christ or my brother in Christ and I feel like family with you you know it's like I there are many people that I still feel family to that I had that interaction with 5 10 15 years ago you know and and um that's that's what's so beautiful about like being open to another person, and and you know, Grishinka mentions this onion, and so the onion that she's talking about, like Whitney alluded to, is this this fable of a woman that that didn't do any good in her life. She everything she did was wicked, but the one good thing she did was a, another woman was starving, and this woman d- dug up an onion and gave it to her, and then she dies and she goes to hell, and yet. The guardian angel, which I don't know if we have personal guardian angels, but in the fable, her guardian angel is like, but what about that onion? What about that time you did something to serve and love another person that, that you know, was spontaneous and was just, it wasn't uh, self-serving? And so, Whitney, take us into that that story and kind of like talk us, talk us through like what you thought about the... The onion, and then we'll just kind of talk about that that as kind of a last big point as we go into the Cana of Galilee section. Yeah. Well, okay. On the one hand, I I do have some qualms with it because it just feels like it's getting into a works salvation territory a little bit, where it's right, like, right. Oh, maybe I can get out of hell because I did this nice thing one time, and but then, oops, no, I have to go back to hell because I was selfish as they were lifting me out of, you know, out of hell because of the onion and people were trying to like latch on to me. I was like, no, get out, get down. It's my onion, you know? So it does feel like she's kind of earning her salvation and then losing it again by being selfish again. Um, whereas, you know, I'm more just a more nuanced understanding of what's going on there. I think it would be this, that God sanctifies us to be more selfless as we walk with him. Like the, we're not earning our way out of eternal punishment by just doing a nice thing for somebody. It's it's just that that's something God will spontaneously just like build into your life and your heart as you walk with him, that you'll be doing kind things for people. Um, but it's a very evocative image that even the smallest thing you do for someone in an onion specifically, is, you know, kind of smelly. So I think in this moment where he's 
So it's subconscious about his elder getting smelly. It's just that that's a perfect image of, you know, the tiniest kind thing you do for someone. I mean, what Alyosha did essentially was just look at Grishinka with affection instead of judgment and then speak that affection. And it meant the world to her. It set her life on a different trajectory. And those are just words. I mean, you know, giving someone an onion, giving someone a simple word of affection, affirmation, that it has power and eternal power, I think is, is very important. Um, and that it does make me think of also our righteousness is as filthy rags. Like giving an onion is a very unglamorous thing to do, like digging an onion up and then handing an onion to someone. Um, but it's still a meaningfully meaningfully powerful and potentially really effective thing to do also. So it's just the complexity of it as a symbol I like a whole lot. You know, obviously I, I concur with like, yeah, you're not getting out of hell because you gave an onion to a woman. But at the same time, God says, he, so in the fable, which by the way, this is a fable. It's not. This is not in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> it, it says God answered. Now take that same onion, hold it out to her in the lake. Let her hold, take hold of it, and pull. And if you pull her out of the lake, she can go to paradise. But if the onion breaks, she can stay where she is. So God knows ahead of time what's going to happen. And I think that Grushinka has faith the side of a mustard seed. She does not have this vivacious, mm-hmm. um, just d- dynamic life of faith in her spirit. She has this like tiny little living thing of truth in her heart, which is that God determines who's in heaven and hell. And in this moment, the woman picks, you know, holds on to the, the onion and it says, um, the angel began pulling her carefully and had almost pulled her all the way out when other sinners in the lake saw her being pulled out and all began to hold, holding on to her so as to be pulled out with her. But the woman was wicked as wicked could be, and she began to kick them with her feet. It's me who's getting pulled out, not you. It's my onion, not yours. No sooner did she say it than the onion broke, and the woman fell back into the lake and is burning there to this day. And the angel wept and went away. And, I, you know, I just think about that... God knew that that act of faith was something that could have repercussions to many people. And because the woman denied God's sovereignty over that action and Mm -hmm. decided it was my onion, I did it, it wasn't a salvation act. And I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, yes, there's a lot of theology involved in this fable that is either wrong or wrong-spirited, but I think that this concept of the seed is so powerful in this novel that this is where Dostoevsky brings it to life, and he's not bringing it to life through a story that Zosima tells or Alyosha or even Dmitri. He's bringing it through Grushinka, who's kind of 
other than Fyodor Pavlovich, I'd say Grushinka is kind of like the antagonist of this novel. And so um, for her to be changed in this moment and see Alyosha in his grief and see that in his grief he sees her real self and sees through all of the like machinations she's tried to build herself up to be, it's like she repents in that moment. And, and it's like I said, it's like the woman at the well with Jesus. It, it's in this moment, she begins a journey of faith that isn't nearly done by the end of the novel. But I think that that is, her onion is acknowledging that it was the sweetest thing in the world for Alyosha to consider her a sister and to not judge her, like you said, but just to like show her compassion, show her love and you know that's why I said like I think the the Orthodox Church is very interested in love (laughs) and I think that um, our you know our local Protestant church is not as focused on love like we're very focused on truth and that's essential it's so essential but truth without love comes across very quickly as about separating the sheep from the goats. And, you know, it's very, um, it's like you were saying, it's an inner group, outer group kind of thing. Um, And, and, you know, I I think in this moment, Alyosha is, is giving Grushinka the chance to come in. And it's not... Do you confess with your heart and believe? You know, but confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is. It's not a baptismal um, salvation moment. It's this beginning of letting a seed be planted in our heart of tr- the truth of Christ that will continue to grow, and that's hard. That's a hard thing for people that are very control minded. It is hard to believe that you could just plant a seed and not see someone come to salvation, but God could still bring them there. Yeah, I mean, something you said a little earlier, but it does help me understand how you could take this this onion parable as being a little more theologically sound anyway, because like you're saying, the woman is not saved ultimately because she is emphasizing her own works and not God's mercy. She's not like, thank God for the mercy that you're showing me. She's like, I gave this onion only me. And I don't, you know, and that that's the crux that that's the huge difference, you know, in terms of like, do I deserve this? It's like, she immediately seems to have jumped to, Hey, yeah, I gave an onion. I do deserve this. And that, means she's not fit for eternity in heaven. Like she wouldn't right. fit there. She wouldn't belong there. Right. She wouldn't even want to be there if she got there right. because it it would not be like suited to her desires and temperament and everything. Yeah. Um I did I did read that um that you know there's this monastery that this monastery is based on that Dostoevsky visited not long after his son died as he was working on Brothers K called um, Optina Pustin. I don't know how to say that, but um, 
they did come out and kind of critique some of his theology in the work because they felt that sometimes the theology expressed by Zosima and others was too too much emphasizing a human compassion and like a human role in regenerating right, the earth right. and almost just sounded like socialism where it's like if we all just love each other and treat each other as equals, then the world will become paradise. I think that it's tempered by the fact that Zosima will clarify sometimes that this is really an eternal thing that will happen and not a temporary thing that will happen. But even in his time, there was a sense that the Orthodox Church was a little uncomfortable with Dostoevsky's emphasis on human efforts transforming the world rather than God's efforts transforming the world, I guess you would say. Well, I, you know, I think just as someone who I think, I think I understand Dostoevsky, I, I have that same impetus to say I can, I can affect the glory of God today. And because I have free will, I can either do it and follow God's will, or I cannot do it and, like, redirect God's will. God's will be done regardless, but that will going through me is ultimately, that, that's where my place is in salvation. It is, do I submit to God? And, you know, I think about just the way Dostoevsky is, is articulating faith in this novel it really is faith played out through the way you react to people, the way you treat people, and the way you intend to, to be to people. And I do think that there's such a thing as head knowledge that does not transform into living faith. I think that there's such a thing as emotional feeling that does not translate into eternal faith. But that you have to have both, both an understanding and an emotion, like like faith has to affect your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and you can't just be like, you know what, intellectually, I I am a hundred percent theologically soundproof, or whatever, you know, bulletproof, but in my body, I do this, or mm-hmm. in my emotions, I do this, or or, yeah. or or any other variation of that, and so. This, I think, is just, I think that Dostoevsky had a, a, an understanding of the people of Russia and of his time that maybe the church didn't have as clear an understanding of because they weren't, like they were too, like this is a monastery we're talking about. They weren't in the world. They're, they're out of the world and not of the world, you know, and so the concept of being in the world but not of the world i think dostoevsky is one of the one of the great examples of that in 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 um, fiction writing you know flannery o'connor would be another great example and yet you know each writer that that fits that bill is going to be so in a different way like flannery o'connor was very in the world in that she understood the philosophies of her time very well she understood m- the pressures of modernity very well. And she's like living in her mom's house and not getting out much. Dostoevsky's like traveling all around Europe, but the whole time he's traveling around, he's like really anxious about money 
and he's you know got this epilepsy so he he's not like bounding around Europe like you know being this healthy guy he's like trying to like survive kind of and so just that concept of of like what can a writer say about his or her time that the church can't I think sometimes the church has such an eternal view that it's hard to apply the kingdom of heaven to now you know Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes humans can get so focused on why isn't the kingdom of heaven on earth perfect right now? Like, it's very difficult to let go and let God be sovereign over the future as well as the present. And I do think that art can speak to emotional truths or or make spiritual truths emotionally present to us in a way that is unique and if you just are a Christian who feels most comfortable honoring and glorifying God in your mind in your intellect like I understand the theological truths I'm supposed to understand it can actually feel very threatening to have spiritual truths depicted in an emotional way in a work of literature because you're like what if this contradicts the the truth that I understand in my mind, um, there can be fear there. Um, and I, I can relate to that, you know, like, is this theologically sound? Is this writer taking too big of an uh, imaginative leap? And then going to get me into a place where I'm not thinking soundly myself because my emotions went along with the story. Like I, I do relate to that fear. Um, but I do think it's just, if we're going to love God with our emotions then we need to let art help us do that. And it can be, Music. It could be any art form, you know, that can help us reach God with, through our emotions. Yeah. Um, the poetry of the Bible, you know, is reaching us through our emotions and not just our minds if we let it. But I think that um, we all just need to be very careful not to overemphasize one of those areas in terms of how we love God and to limit ourselves to just that area. Um, because if we do, we're missing out a lot and we're disobeying God too. Um, like you said, if you're not loving God with your, your body, you know, where you're like Dimitri sort of, and you're, you're saying, well, I lo- I do love God in my emotions, but in my actual body and actions, you would never know it right now. Like that's, yeah. you're missing out massively and you're, and you're disobeying God. But same as if, if you are like, I love theology, I love studying, I love talking about God but I honestly just don't have, like, a lot of compassionate feelings for people. I don't have an emotive connection to God. You're missing out massively, yeah. and you're disobeying God. You know, I think about, you know, as we're getting to the Cana of Galilee section, you know, I think that I, I saw uh, it was like a like a reading stand or something. And it was a Charles Spurgeon quote that said, travel to other books, but make your home in the Bible. And, you know, I, I think it is as an extension of that. I mean, I'm going to talk more about the quote itself in a second, but as an extension of that is like exist in the world as it is, but make your home in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And so the kingdom of heaven is on earth. We can access it. Obviously, a great place to start would be the Bible. But um, you can have it, you know, in, in community with other Christians. And, 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 and so 
that is where I, that's my home. That's where I belong. And yet I have to exist in this place that's, <laughs> that's the world, the kingdom of earth. You know, it's, it's broken. It's, it's sinful. It's, it's a place where there's so much injustice and sadness and, and just addiction and hate and, and all these different things. And yet God made it such that we can redeem more of it through faith. And, and that's what I think Alyosha has been strengthened to do uh, in this chapter of Canada of Galilee. And, um, you know, as Whitney was saying, like, you're really not letting God be God of, of all your parts if you're just hyper-focusing on one aspect of faith rather than becoming a new creation. And I think that um, that's what happens to Alyosha in this moment. I don't think it's it's his justification. Like I don't think he's saved in this moment. I think he already was a faithful Christian. But in this moment, he is transformed the way that, like, Josephine was a different being when she began to walk. Like, once she could walk, she was never going to have tummy time ever again. You know, she went from being a baby to being a toddler. And obviously, when she's listening to this, she might be like a full-grown woman. Who knows? But that that was a change, you know, that that was a change that, that made a world of difference, not just for her, but for us as well. And so I think that that's, that's what happens in this Cana of Galilee uh, chapter mm-hmm. is Alyosha goes back to uh, Zosima's cell, and, and the, the, the coffin is there, and he basically falls asleep and has a dream, and it's very much like a parallel of Ivan's dream with the devil. And so there's all this just, I and mean, we didn't talk about it at length, but I'm just going to mention it now. The design of this book is so beautiful. Like, there's so many parallels and so many little things that, that just work perfectly and, you know, just just make it the work of art that it is. But he has this dream, and, and um, he sees Zosima. And this is all while Father Pisces, I believe it is, or Father Yosef, mm-hmm. um, is reading the Cana of Galilee section of the Bible in, in um, John. I think it's chapter 3. Anyways, um, it's in John. And um, this is Jesus' first miracle. And so... Um, He's, you know, he's at this wedding. They're running out of wine. Mary comes to him, and she's like, can you please make some more wine? And he says, my time has not yet come. And I mentioned this. I think I mentioned it in a Bible study, and people were, like, looking at me like I had three heads. And I was like, this is the moment where Jesus, like, has to start his ministry because his mom asks him to turn water into wine, which seems like, that'd be an awesome time to start your ministry. But he knows where this ministry is heading. It's heading to the cross. And so he has this human trepidation of like, it's not time yet, mom. And she's like, but they need more wine. Like, it's a wedding. We need to celebrate. Mm-hmm. And and th- that he would have this moment of like, uh, almost like like he hit the brakes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's like when he tells Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, because Peter is tempting him to not want to go to the cross yes. by saying, no, that will never happen to you. We won't let that happen. It, it's similar here in spirit. It makes sense to me that 
he's like he knows the the hard road he's about to enter, and he's like, is it time to to enter on the yeah. that road that inexorable path toward the cross and being cut off from God for for a time and but then like as it says in Cana of Galilee his mother knew that he had come not only to make his great terrible sacrifice she knew that his heart was open even to the simple artless merrymaking of some obscure and unlearned people who had warmly bidden him to their poor wedding um just this idea that Christ's heart for us is not just leading him to die for us, it's leading him to have a feast with us, to having a wedding with us in eternity. He's our bridegroom. His heart for us is not just to die for us, but to live with us. Yeah. And this is like a central scene in The Chosen season one or two. I can't remember. I think maybe it's two. Um, But... The, the wedding of Galilee is a wedding of Gal the wedding of Cana and Cana um just to think that like you invited the mom of the savior of the world and therefore he comes like you didn't invite him you don't know him but you invite this person who does know him and she brings him in and he transforms and it's like that to me connects so much to Grushenka is like she had invited <laughs> Someone who knew the savior of the world, Alyosha, yeah. thinking she was going to corrupt him or, the, you know, thinking it was going to go one way. And then when it didn't go that way, it went much better than she could have imagined. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what a just, you know, this idea of like these poor people that don't have enough uh, provisions for their guests. And I understand like a wedding was a big thing, like, you know, in that, in that time, it wasn't just like, well, here's, you know four gallons of of fruit punch and you know when it's gone it's gone like it they were expected to basically feed the family feed 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 the guests like like it was supposed to be a multi-day party and then here in this moment the wine runs out and they think well party's over too soon and everyone's gonna you know judge us and be like why do we go to this lame wedding and instead jesus turns the water into wine to show that he can transform something that is as ordinary. I mean, the most ordinary thing in the world is water. It's something everyone in the world has drunk before. And yet he transforms it to something that takes time, that you can't just, you know, you can't just uh, take water and put it in the refrigerator, it comes out wine. Like, wine takes time to make it takes a certain type of fruit to make right the different types of wine but it's something that is chemically completely different from water and that is what christianity is saying to the world is saying come be wine and not water Mm -hmm. and come be renewed come be completely changed and it doesn't happen overnight in a way because it takes the rest of your lifetime to live out the human life you have. But you have an eternal change immediately yeah. upon the profession of Christ with your mouth and the belief in your heart. And so that's, you know, that's one of the hard things to understand is like, how are you justified for eternity, but you could sin millions more times? It's like, because you, in your right mind, you saw Jesus for who he was and you saw yourself for who you are 
and you made the decision in that moment, I'm going to let Christ be the Lord of my heart. And you said earlier, Alyosha isn't, you know, saved in the Cain of Galilee. Like he already had saving faith in Christ, but something changes. I think what changes is that he looks, fixes his eyes on Christ and Christ's true character in a way that changes him from being like a son in the faith to a father in the faith, a follower to a leader. Like he can take on the Zosima role for someone new who's younger in the faith than him now going forward. Like there are a few things that make me think about that because during this dream vision, um, Zosima is telling, he sees Zosima alive at, at the wedding feast, you know, where we're all going to get to celebrate our, the church's, marriage to Christ. He sees Zosima alive and Zosima says, look, look at him, look at Jesus. And Alyosha says, I'm afraid. I dare not look. And he says, Zosima answers, don't fear him. Um, he's infinitely merciful. He has made himself like unto us from love and rejoices with us. Um, like he is here to be with us, God with us, not God, you know, standing aloof from us because he's so much greater than us. It's yeah. God with us. He says, look to him. Um, and it says something glowed in Alyosha's heart, something filled it. Um, and then he wakes up and it says soon after that, something firm and unshakable as that vault of heaven had entered into his soul. It was as though some idea had seized the sovereignty of his mind and it was for all his life and forever and ever. He had fallen on the earth a weak youth, but he had rose up a resolute champion. Mm. That's the change that happens to him. He's a champion of the faith instead of a youth in the faith. Yeah. Like he's on solid food instead of milk spiritually. Yes. And yes. it's because it's because he looked to Jesus and saw Jesus' true character, which is not just that he dies for us, but that he wants to live with us. He yes. wants to be with us. Yeah, and that whole section, I just highlighted it all in purple because purple's my favorite color and Alyosha's my favorite character. Um, you know, really like that whole ending of that section, he wakes up from the dream and it says, he did not stop on the porch either, but went quickly down the steps. Filled with rapture, he, his soul yearned for freedom, space, vastness. Over him, the heavenly dome, full of quiet, shining stars, hung boundlessly. From the zenith to the horizon, the still dim Milky Way stretched its double-strand night, fresh and quiet, almost unstirring, enveloped the earth. The white towers and golden domes of the church gleamed in the sapphire sky. The luxuriant autumn flowers in the flower beds near the house had fallen asleep until morning. The silence of the earth seemed to merge with the silence of the heavens. The mystery of the earth touched the mystery of the stars. Alyosha stood gazing and suddenly, as if he had been cut down, threw himself to the earth. He did not know why he was embracing it. He did not try to understand why he longed so irresistibly to, to kiss it, to kiss all of it. But he was kissing it, weeping, sobbing, and watering it with his tears, and he vowed ecstatically to love it, to love it until the ages of ages. Water the earth with the tears of your joy, and love those tears rang in his soul. What was he weeping for? Oh, in his rapture he wept even for the stars that shone on him from the abyss, and he was not ashamed of this ecstasy. It was as if threads from all those innumerable worlds of God all came together in his soul, and it was trembling all over, touching other worlds. 
He wanted to forgive everyone and for everything and to ask forgiveness, oh, not for himself, but for all and for everything as others are asking for me, rang again in his soul. But with each moment, he clearly he felt clearly and almost tangibly something as sudden, something as firm and immovable as that this heavenly vault descended and in, descend into his soul. And that that part that Whitney just read, that really is the moment where that like it's about halfway through the novel, and and I think that's the moment where the the novel just like leapt up into a great novel for me. Like up until that point, it was an interesting novel. It was kind of a little bit infuriating at times. It was a little bit hilarious at times. It, it was like, it was as if it was touching all my emotions except, except for this like eternal ecstatic moment. And so for this to happen, you know, halfway through and then, you know, for the rest of the novel to, to occur, you know, it, it says um, at the very end of the novel, if I can find it, um, Alyosha, um, half laughing, half in ecstasy. You know, that same word in Russian for ecstasy in Cain of Galilee, I'm sure, is the same word that he used at the, at the end. And that in moments of true open souls, you can have the ecstasy of Christ because you see Basically, you see yourself for what you are, which is a creation of God. You see yourself for what you can be, which is a child of God. And you see, you see the world for what it can be, which is a redeemed creation of God. And, and of course, that's not going to come until Revelation. But we can be part of that renewal by helping to renew the souls of those that don't know Christ. And that's partly why we do this podcast is like we want it to be a testimony to our faith we want it to be an invitation to faith of others and we want it to be a reminder to all those that do believe like we 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 serve the living god like we're not uh serving a fable or a fantasy this this is a living being in three parts that that we love to serve and we love to to just contemplate and 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 like what he was saying we love it that he comes to us like we don't have to go to a monastery to find him it's it, he's with us by the holy spirit by the scriptures by being around other christians being at church etc cetera, etc cetera. we can we we can't separate from him now and and so that moment I thought was just so powerful, and obviously Dostoevsky thought so because he bragged about it. <laughs> but but I think he was right. I think he I think whenever you're making a creative thing, you know the very best thing about it. Mm-hmm. And um, he didn't want anyone confused that the best thing about yes. it was the Grand Inquisitor yes. or something, which people yes. do get confused about. And you know, I was thinking about it as like a final thing to talk about with this, just because. It's only been two hours. Um, I thought, you know, final question would be, when should you read this novel? Because I, I think this is definitely a novel. Obviously, if you've listened to through chapter through, you know, episode ten with us, you probably have read this, or at least you're going to. But I think the question with great novels is not should you read it, but when should you read it? When 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 would you suggest someone to read Brothers Karamazov? Oh, that's a tough question because... Because you're teaching it this year. Because I'm teaching it this year. And, I, you know, with some trepidation, it's so big. And I, I'm not 
I've been wrestling with whether to teach the whole thing or just to teach big excerpts. But I do think if you're younger and a less experienced reader, you might want to consider reading it with a guide. Um, like Such as this podcast. <laughs> and I would say a guide who is a believer in Christ so that the book is understood in all of its um, wisdom and not misunderstood and twisted. Um yeah, because it, I've read some, what I would consider to be some extremely egregious misreadings of this book. Um, it's, it's very possible to not understand what Dostoevsky's purpose was for this book. So, same with Flannery O'Connor, like reading it with a guide, unless you're an experienced reader who's willing to, to bring your thoughtful judgment. Yeah, so... I don't know that there is an age. People are at different ages in terms of the thoughtfulness with which they're able to read and the discernment with which they're able to read. And, I mean, even we have used guides. Like, we've used Arthur Trace and uh, Victor Terrace and Malcolm Jones and Jessica Houghton-Wilson and, you know, um, Joseph Frank. Like, all of these uh, books that we've we've used to, to help shape our thoughts, you know, that's... I think that's part of being a great reader is is knowing that other people have read this and letting them affect your mind, not necessarily make up your mind for you, mm-hmm. but at least give you the options of how to see it if you're not seeing it yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're just reading anything as simply a consumer, you're just gobbling it up um, or taking it on first impression or not digesting it that much no matter what age you are I just I think that you're likely to fall into some being influenced in some unhealthy ways by the things that you're consuming we just it's just so important to bring discernment and to bring the the book in which we make our home you know scripture yes to bear on all the other things that we use for entertainment and enlightenment and all the way that ways that we interact with art um stay grounded in the the home truth but yeah this this novel does not proselytize in a straightforward way it lets characters like ivan have their say in ways that can be deeply troubling and disturbing so there is you know there's a certain spiritual danger the same way there's a spiritual danger through just and just walking through this world and hearing all the different messages you hear and trying to wade through them and figure out what's true and what's not if you don't have a home truth in scripture you can get blown around by every wind yeah and you know that quote you know i think about like you know maybe you're like timeshare or summer home or whatever you know it's like maybe you have a novel like Brothers Karamazov that's like your go-to I'm going to read that every year the rest of my life I don't think I I don't think I can uh, it's just such a long book (laughs) but uh, you know for some people maybe that's that's their book and we commend you for that and and you know I think about like there are the things that I go to again and again and again, the same way that, like, I like going back to Athens because, you know, I want to live there for a while. It's, you know, it's like I still have places I like to go or people I like to see. And, you know, the idea of, like, making your home in the Bible, well, you got to share it with other people. 
you know, you can't live in a one-bedroom, one-bath Bible. And, um, you know, to Whitney's point about having a guide, it's like that's, that's what the church is supposed to be doing is, like, guiding new believers through the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it's uh, an actual local church or maybe it's a church that, that preaches online or, like, you know, through the Bible with J. Vernon McGee, who I think has been dead for about 30 years, but his program's still on. Um, I think that just being willing to walk with someone through, uh, you know, through scripture, through art, through life, really makes life more bearable. And, um, you know, Ivan's, I think, great tragedy up to the point where he kind of loses his mind is that he thought he could walk through life by himself. And he tried to kind of, um, like, uh, like abdicate his his Karamazov, you know, <laughs> and that you can't just drop your family name or family identity. Like you have your DNA, you have you have some things about you that are going to be reminiscent of a family member, mm-hmm. whether you like it or not. And I think the best thing to do is just embrace. Like oh, I like like I laugh like my dad. It's like well, that's great. Like I, at first, I I used to be like oh, I don't want to laugh because I you know my dad has this really you know distinctive laugh but now that my dad's gone it's like that's one of the ways I can connect to him it's like if I laugh hilariously it's like I'm I'm thinking about my dad laughing like that too and and you know for Josephine it's like I, I know she's going to have a lot of things in common with Whitney and me you know the rest of her life and I hope that she doesn't want to you know divorce herself from those things I hope she embraces them and and I hope that one of those things that she does share with us is a love of reading. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I just appreciate getting to, to talk about this novel at such great length and, and, you know, with the person that I would most want to talk to about it in the whole world, which is Whitney. And, and you know, this has been a, a, just a great uh, pleasure and joy for us. And, and uh, we just have appreciated you listening with us all season long. And we look forward to season four summer 2023 uh summer reading with the deals whitney i think we're going to do the poetry of t.s Eliot. sounds good to me so a little little uh curveball there so my students will be reading a lot of t.s Eliot next year yes so buckle up <laughs> um, but i thought you know we've done a huge novel let's let's do something maybe a little challenging in a different way uh, and what is more challenging than T.S. Eliot? So uh, we look forward to uh, talking with you again next summer on Summer Reading with the Deals. God bless you.